Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. For this show, I'm joined once again by Duncan Brack after the popularity of our shows, looking at lessons from previous Liberal Party leaders, Joe Grimman and David Steele. This time, we're going to take a look at a policy area, the Liberal and then Liberal Democrats' long record of pro-Europeanism. Welcome back to the show, Duncan. Thanks very much. Good to be here. So let's start with the 1950s, because what became the European Union started to emerge when six countries, but not the UK, created the European Coal and Steel Community in 1952, and then in 1957 signed the Treaty of Rome, creating the European Economic Community, the EEC, which over time became the European Community and then the European Union. Now, in the 50s, the general consensus in the political class in Britain was to be fairly hostile to the emerging European organisations on the continent and to have alternative plans and to not want Britain to take part in them and so on. Now, that obviously changed subsequently, but the Liberal Party was quite pro-European right from the off in those 1950s debates. So where did that pro-Europeanism come from? So I want to go back to the 1820s. <laughs> this is going to be a long answer to get <laughs> to get back to the 1950s, a, a, an excellent academic historian's answer. Absolutely. And uh, I want to explain where the liberal commitment to internationalism comes mm. from, which then led to the liberal commitment to European Union. Um, and uh, I said, we go back to the 1820s and the foundation of um, what was what you could sort of credibly regard as one of the very early first pressure groups, national pressure groups, the Anti-Corn Law League. And this was established um, mainly by manufacturers based in Manchester, and eventually it um, helped to give the name to the, the Manchester School of uh, Classical Liberal Economists. But the um, the aim was the Corn Laws were um, import duties on imports of grain, and which meant that foreign grain was more expensive. And the point of them, they were they were introduced after the Napoleonic Wars to protect the the landowners, uh, British landowners whose estates produced grain, so they could sell to uh, the British audience and um, British consumers, and therefore um, they wouldn't be undercut by cheaper foreign grain coming in. Now, um, the founders of the Anti Corn Law League, uh, Richard Cobden, John Bright, and others regarded this as um, unacceptable. It obviously raised the prices of food for ordinary people, but they were they were kind of they're coming out of the liberal radical reformist tradition. It wasn't just about prices. And indeed people tended not to think about sort of economic policy as different from from policy then uh, you know the concept of economic policy wasn't really uh, wasn't really current. Um, this was a um, they saw the attempt to abolish the Corn Laws as an assault on the remnants of the feudal order, a, an assault on privilege, on the kind of systems that fix things in favour of the landowners, who just also happened to be pre predominantly Tories. Um, so this was it was a way of breaking down the um, this uh, protection for privilege and giving ordinary people who just bought the the bread that the that the grain was used for um, a fair chance uh, to allow them to compete on the level playing field as we would call it now um, and avoid any kind of fixing of the economic uh, market in favour of the landowners. And I, th um, I guess there's a parallel there with modern American politics where. There's a lot of opposition to regulation and tax breaks and so on from a libertarian and right wing perspective. But also you get quite a lot of people on the centre left or radicals also unhappy about the extent to which who gets the tax break when there's a big complicated bill going through uh, the US Congress. It's predominantly those who are rich and powerful and can afford the lobbyists and the like. And so there's an extent to which regulation and tax breaks and trade arrangements and so on benefit the rich and powerful. And that was very much the, the sort of the 1820s uh, and, and later perspective in Britain, wasn't it? I guess I should also throw in a quick fact check before we get inundated with tweets from outraged historians. The Anti-Cornwall League, if I remember rightly, was founded in 1836, wasn't it? But the, the campaigning against the Corn Laws very much had started long before then. I beg your pardon, you're absolutely correct. Um, Cobden himself arrived in Manchester and set up as a calico printer in the 20s. Mm -hmm. Then then that led to the foundation of the League. Uh, thank you for correcting me there. But you're absolutely right. And um, so the part of the the thinking behind this was that uh, it, I said it kind of led into although Cobden and his colleagues were radicals I think at the time radical reformers this led to the creation of what you could regard as the kind of classical liberal approach to economy where which um, 
points to the dangers of government intervention, exactly the kind of things you've just been talking about, uh, and argues that the government should keep out of the economy and let ordinary people, ordinary businesses compete on a, on a level playing field with that interference. Um, and at the time, also, this was part of an assault on uh, foreign policy. And again, this is one of the benefits of removing import duties and allowing trade to proceed most freely, then um, by encouraging links between nations, uh, liberals look to free trade as the agency promote internationalism and end war. And it's a great quote from John Bright, for the disbanding of great armies and the promotion of peace, I rely on the abolition of tariffs on the brotherhood of the nations resulting from free trade in the products of industry. So trade promoted interdependence and the sense of international community, building links between peoples and nations and rendering conflicts less likely. And that was quite different from what was kind of regarded as foreign policy at the time, which was all about a kind of mercantilist view of grabbing the biggest market through um, occupying colonies and uh, doing your opponents down and the very kind of dog-eat-dog type of uh, international diplomacy, which was the kind of orthodoxy at the time. So in many ways, it was really quite a, a fundamental assault on the ruling order. And it took them quite a while. Um, but in 1846, eventually the House of Commons did abolish the Corn Laws, or at least reduced the uh, levels of import duties quite substantially. In the process, splitting the Conservative Party, um, Robert Peel, who was Prime Minister at the time, became convinced by the argument for the Corn Laws, but um, he wasn't able to convince the bulk of his party. And where have we heard this before about mm -hmm. Conservative Party being split over international issues? Um, and the, uh, his opponents, led by Disraeli, who of course was later to become uh, Conservative Prime Minister, and Bentinck and others uh, split the party basically, and it drove the followers of Peel, later known as the Peelites, uh, and they continued to operate as a parliamentary group even after Peel himself had died. Um, and it split them away from the Conservative Party for a while. They operated as an independent group in the House of Commons, but eventually they merged into the Liberal Party, and they were one of the key groups that led to the foundation of Liberal Party, which is generally regarded as happening in uh, around about 1859. And one um, of the um, strange echoes, curious echoes of that in later Liberal and Liberal Democrat history is that Robert Peel is the only Conservative Prime Minister who has had a song in the Liberator Songbook praising him. <laughs> uh, so one of the songs of the time uh, where the refrain in the chorus is tramp, tramp, tramp upon protection is all about praising Peel, the abolition of the Corn Laws, and therefore making food cheaper, and hence particularly benefiting the least well-off. And it's, in a way, it's quite remarkable that a song praising a Tory Prime Minister should ever have featured in the Liberator Songbook. I think it's no longer in the latest editions, but certainly in, say, the 1990s, it used to feature in there, although I don't think, I'm not sure when it would have last actually been sung at a glee club. But it does illustrate how there is that long tradition of viewing free trade as being a very liberal thing that can help the least well off in society, which is obviously different from how some of the free trade arguments have been framed, particularly in the developing world in, say, the second half of the last century. Yep, that's absolutely right. And it was it, free trade uh, as a result of the actions of the League then became a kind of article of liberal faith. And indeed, uh, in many ways, an article of national faith. It underpinned the uh, the long mid-Victorian economic boom from the 1840s right through to the 1870s, as the abolition of import duties on grain through the abolition of the Corn Laws was then followed by the abolition of import duties on a whole range of other things. And one of the main Peelite politicians who ultimately joined the Liberal Party as a result of that split was, of course, William Gladstone, mm. um, probably the most famous Liberal Prime Minister of all. Um, but as Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1860, he reduced the number of products um, that were liable to import duties from over 1,000 to just 16. And that had a huge impact on the economy. Um, basic staples then became cheaper for, um, for working class people, for middle class people. And that helped to underpin the appeal of the Liberal Party to both the industrialists, the kind of growing industrial uh, strength of the country because you know cheap grain, cheap bread meant that they could afford to pay their workers less, but also the working classes and middle classes who benefited it. So you see actually the Liberal vote becoming quite different from what it used to be um, and much more coherent in that sense. And particularly that was important as the franchise was extended. And free trade became a kind of staple of liberal campaigns and for, for generations, uh, and particularly when the issue came to a head again at, towards the end of the 19th century when Joseph Chamberlain managed to split the Conservative Party by um, leading a campaign for what was called imperial preference, so uh, import duties against the rest of the world but preference for the colonies. Um, 
then liberal candidates started appearing on election platforms with two loaves, and they would contrast the, the Tory little loaf that would result from import duties with the liberal big loaf. And this was yeah, a major part of uh, liberal campaigns and helped to underpin the great liberal election landslide of 1906. Um, so I do wonder whether following the end of the Brexit transition period next year and the likely negative impact on food prices in Britain, whether we may start brandishing loaves at future general elections. I think that's a thoroughly good idea. Actually, I remember as chair of a conference debate, I think it was actually on social security issues like 10 or 15 years ago, um, Ricky Younger-Ross, who later became MP for one of the Devon seats, actually appeared with two loaves on the, on the screen. But I'm not sure he was talking about free trade at the time, but maybe we'll see that at conference when we get back to, to physical conferences. Um, and again, free trade became important right through to the 1920s um, when the First World War led to the uh, split in the Liberal Party between uh, at the followers of Asquith and Lloyd George. They were reunited by Prime Minister Conservative Prime Minister Baldwin's um, plan to introduce protection again in 1923, wasn't it? Um, and Baldwin actually called an election on the uh, on the promise of that, and it, it reunited the Liberals and led to quite a big increase in the Liberal vote. One thing I've never quite understood is why the First World War didn't seem to throw more doubt on that sort of view of free trade as a political project that would not only help the least well-off within Britain, but would also bring international peace. Because prior to the First World War, there were various, what now looked like tragically misplaced, you know, tomes of optimism about how the increasingly interconnected nature of European economies would mean that war in Europe, at least, you know, would never happen again. And then we had the Great War. And, and it, that doesn't seem to have really produced a crisis of confidence amongst sort of liberal free traders that maybe that they, they were wrong what why, why did that not happen that's an interesting question i'm not really sure what the answer is now it's absolutely a fair criticism i think the the belief that free trade would would create links between nations and actually the period kind of leading up to the first world first world war was by and large a period of removing trade barriers mm -hmm. uh, indeed starting in the 1850s when cobden on behalf of the liberal government negotiated a free trade agreement with france and then that led to a whole series of free trade agreements negotiated across europe kind of emulating that so you began to see almost the kind of appearance of an embryonic type of free trading European community at that point. But you're right, then the free, um, obviously the idea that, that countries that trade together don't fight uh, was obviously led to, a, a, um, was hit a sort of pretty bad bow by the First World War. I think the kind of theory then transmuted itself into the idea that democracies don't fight each other. And the problem was in the First World War, you had autocracies in Germany and Austria-Hungary and to a certain extent in Russia um, that were perhaps immune to the um, the benefits of free trade that benefited their populations rather than the people who actually led the governments. And if you've got an autocracy, the autocrats can do something that is against the self-interest of the overall population. And yes, I think that's yeah, right. Yeah, I, I can see that as a as a half decent excuse, I guess. I, I and and then of course with the Second World War, um, that reinforced in a way the the point about the limitations of seeing international links as as the solution, but also within particularly those six countries that then took the initial steps in the 1950s, it produced a real sense of well look. If, if we don't want a continuing history of everyone being at odds with each other, we've got to find a radically different approach. But initially, that was, again, very much an economic focused one. So that initial treaty was the uh, very much focused on things like the steel industry. And even then, when the Treaty of Rome was signed later in the 1950s, it was a very heavily economic focused uh, treaty. Again, a little side note, I, I noticed when uh, looking up on this a couple of days ago, the BBC discovered a couple of years back that the version of the Treaty of Rome that was signed by all of the six heads of state was actually blank due to a printing problem. <laughs> Only the front page and the last page where the signatures went had, were, were printed, all the pages in between were blank. So um, at some point, um, I, I would expect some enthusiastic Eurosceptic in some country will take take everything to court, arguing that the whole Treaty of Rome right from day one was invalid because they were signing wow. blank papers. Hopefully none of them are listening to um, to this podcast. Um, but yes, I think, um, I mean, I think the Second World War kind of um, 
reinforced the desire to create international systems that kept countries together rather than um, after the failure of the whole series of international treaties and international agreements between the first and the second world wars failed to fail to do that for um uh, particularly nazi germany and um the Bretton woods conference was quite important in this after the just after the second world war uh, where john maynard keynes a famous liberal participated on behalf of the british government and that conference led to the creation of the world bank and the international monetary fund and keynes argued and other economists like james mead argued also for the creation of an international trade organization that would help to remove trade barriers between countries and avoid the kind of um the depression era um sort of dog eat dog raising of import duties that um had been seen in the 20s and 30s um and sadly that um his idea was vetoed by the american government at the time that didn't want that much interference in their right to um impose barriers to trade and it led to what was called a provisional substitute the general agreement on tariffs and trade the gat which actually was quite successful in um steering through over the following five decades mm. a whole series of reductions in import duties and other trade barriers and led eventually to the creation of a world trade organization pretty much along the lines that Keynes had argued for in the 40s I, so it just shows liberals all... are always right um, to uh, argue <laughs> things usually ahead of their time I think what that also reflects is at least for many people after the second world war that internationalism argument when it came to trade had a much stronger economic element uh, and a much broader economic element so while as you rightly said for example in Britain in the early 19th century the economic argument was quite heavily focused on food prices and the least well off uh, i think by the post second world war it was much more broad this is good for the overall state of the economy and maybe in a way what we've skipped over which was perhaps more important than the second world war in terms of its impact on international cooperation in some ways was the great depression and that sense that countries had made the great depression worse by putting up trade barriers and that everyone had done something that they thought was in their short-term interest, but collectively made uh, everyone even worse off. And therefore, even if you don't buy wanting to be nice to your neighbours for other reasons, there is an immediate self-interest in terms of this overall state of the economy. And of course, the very phrase, the overall state of the economy, was a concept that didn't really exist back in the 19th century, uh, for much at least of the 19th century. And, and, and so I think when this idea about should Britain take part in these emerging European structures kept started you know becoming an issue in the 1950s there was that, that economic argument and should Britain instead concentrate on empire stroke commonwealth instead um, but I think for Joe Grimman and the Liberals there was still quite a sort of an ideological we believe you know countries should be much closer to each other should cooperate because in the end we are all human beings and a, a, a more sort of principled non-economic argument wasn't there yes absolutely and it's i think the um the liberal adherence to uh, membership or uk membership of the common market as it was called then owes a lot to joe grimmond <clears throat> um and it was uh when he became leader in 1956 and he started publishing a series of articles in liberal news in uh, 1957 called under the heading where liberals stand and this was an attempt basically to sidestep the formal policy making machinery of the party which was pretty shambolic at the time uh, and he just set up his own sort of network of thinkers and groups to come up with ideas and the very first article at the beginning of 1957 was about the need for european integration and this was i mean similar in many ways to actually the critique that cobden and bright and the anti-corn law league um, were posing to uh, to british foreign policy more than a century earlier this was and again an assault on the 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 basis of british foreign policy in the 50s which was still very much in the imperialist mm. empire mindset you know britain maintained lots of military bases east of suez including singapore they still had control of many colonies in africa and asia um and uh grimmond argued uh, of course they had the british independent nuclear deterrent and grimmond argued against all these things and the need to adopt a new approach where britain should be more closely integrated with its european neighbors and forget about these old style imperial entanglements which clearly were not defensible anymore um particularly as the you know uh, as nationalist movements um in many of the colonies came to the fore and started arguing quite logically for independence and how popular were Grimmond's views with his colleagues in the Liberal Party? Was taking the Liberal Party on a pro, not only on a pro-European integration trajectory, but also making it such a central part of the political outlook that it was, as you say, 
his choice for his first article. Uh, yeah, so was, was that popular with colleagues? Was that controversial? So it caused some tension, definitely. Um, and there is the, uh, the uh, because of the yeah, the Liberal Party had stuck to free trade. It was um, by the 1940s, it was virtually the only in opinion polls, it's virtually the only part, uh, only policy that anybody recognised uh, as being a Liberal policy. But um, most people didn't have a clue what the Liberal Party standard for by then stood for by then. Um, so, but there was still a, a strong adherence to free trade, and the idea—a kind of rather distant vision of a of an of a world government, um, which I think was in the I think it was even in the preamble to the old Liberal Party constitution, looking forward to a world federalism and there's a world federalist movement and um, things like that. And people like that tended to worry about the idea of a European. Um, movement that would set up tariffs against the rest of the world so it was a kind of not a world movement it was not a not a movement towards world free trade but a, a kind of regional approach that was not necessarily um, what they wanted to see and they they looked forward to a much more globalist approach uh, so they tended to be rather unhappy with Grimm's approach and, but at the same time the party's economic policy was shifting and this has started back in the new liberal era during the first world war with the acceptance that government needed to intervene more in the economy to um, guarantee the conditions of you know things like good healthcare, good education um, unemployment insurance stuff like that that was all started with Lloyd George and um, there was a kind of running battle in the party throughout out the 20s and 30s between uh, the more interventionist liberals, what we'd now probably call social liberals nowadays, and the more old style classical liberals who thought any government interference in the economy was a, was a bad thing. And that basically argument ended with the debate around European integration versus global free trade. And in the end, the global free traders lost the argument. Um, in 1960, I think the Liberal Assembly confirmed support for uh, UK entry to the EU. EEC as it was then and in 61 there was a decisive debate where the free traders tried to reverse that position and lost and many of them then departed from the party um, and indeed some of them went off and founded the Institute of Economic Affairs which of course was to be um, important later on in conservative and particularly Thatcherite thinking in the 70s and 80s um, but that was quite a decisive moment uh, when the party turned uh, quite clearly towards a social liberal and also at the same time pro-European uh, angle. Yeah and, and I think the social liberal aspect of that is quite important isn't it because the the argument between being in favour of European integration as a route to global free trade, you first get free trade within Europe, versus being opposed to that because you fear that free trade within Europe will go will go with barriers against other bits of the world and therefore will be a, the wrong route to getting to the same shared objective. That was an argument essentially over tactics to do with, uh, but a, a shared goal. Um, and actually, as we see in the Liberal Democrats at the moment, you can dis have disagreements over tactics that are very vociferous <laughs> sometimes, you know, like at the moment over how what is the best way for the Lib Dems to end up with Britain being back in the EU. Um, but that is nonetheless a, a debate over tactics rather than over, over principles. But the path by which people left the Liberal Party and ended up being the think tank for Thatcherism was was rather more than that, wasn't it? The social liberal aspect yes. to that divide yeah i think that's right i think that's right that as well as not liking the idea of european integration because it, it, it offended their visions of global free trade they didn't like the kind of keynesian direction the party was moving in the more interventionist uh, social liberal style and that was all part of the same uh, package that Grimmond was presenting to the party. And that was reinforced by the big influx of members into the party uh, in the early 60s as the, the first liberal post-war revival uh, under Grimmond took part. And by and large, by the kind of mid-60s, support for European integration was not a controversial issue anymore at all. There were very few liberals who would argue for it. The and, other and thing of I think... The, um, as the European institutions were developing, they were developing in line with that sort of view. So things like the common agriculture policy, which quite a controversial topic could easily take up a podcast all on its own but the way that the the european institutions were evolving involved not only free trade it also involved all all sorts of other interventions in the free market and therefore combining being pro-european with a social liberal outlook worked whilst being pro-european but being quite hardline free market increasingly meant you were out of out of tune with with the way your the european institutions were going 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think just just before sort of dealing with that, I think we ought to remember that that support for European integration was always it was never just about the economics mm. in the same way that, that the anti corn law league was never just about mm. cheap grain prices. It was about particularly in the wake of two world catastrophic world wars led by European uh, sparked off by European quarrels. It was about binding European countries together and making future conflicts less likely. And that was a major, major role, uh, reason for supporting Euro European integration in the first place. But the agricultural the, the point you're right, I mean, it wasn't just about trade between nations. Um, and uh, there was also a tension within the party between the kind of general free trade um, obsession, if you like. Uh, and indeed, you can see liberal assemblies in the 50s voting to support unilateral free trade. So Britain just removes all its import barriers, regardless of what any other countries would do. And that was increasingly a problem for candidates in rural seats where um, British agriculture would be at threat from uh, imports of cheap food, just as it was uh, back in the 19th century. And indeed, one assembly, I think it was 1953, after the assembly voted to uh, for the unilateral removal of all uh, import protection, import protections for agricultural goods, Jeremy Thorpe, who's then candidate for North Devon before he was elected, seized a microphone and said that he and candidates in other rural constituencies would simply ignore the policy and, and disown it uh, and not put it in their election manifestos. So that, you know, given that the uh, the EEC had quite a big impact um, quite a big emphasis on agricultural policy, largely because most of the European countries who were part of it had pretty inefficient and large agricultural mm -hmm. sectors. So they were actually more important for the, their economies than, than the UK, than they were for the UK. Um, that was quite attractive to uh, liberal candidates in rural areas as well. Perish the thought that one can draw any parallels with any subsequent periods in the party's history of being worried about principles versus winning seats in the southwest. <laughs> well, indeed, and of course we should remember that when the Lib Dems uh, voted together with John Major's Conservative government over the Maastricht Treaty in, I think, '92, wasn't it? Late '92, um, uh, when the uh, when Major was at risk of losing his majority because of Conservative rebels, the one Lib Dem MP who didn't vote with the rest of them was Nick Harvey, mm. MP for North Devon. Um, I mean, I, I guess it's worth sort of digressing slightly, because um, of course it's you know, it's a more complicated trade-off than the slightly caricatured way I just presented it. But what was it that was the basis of the liberal appeal in places like, say, Jeremy Thorpe's constituency that didn't really chime with at least some of the direction in which you know Joe Grimman and others were try were were trying to take the party? Because in a way, in terms of winning parliamentary constituencies, actually the party did rather better at winning Jeremy Thorpe type seats, you know, in this Celtic fringe and so on. So so what was really at the heart of that tension? That's an interesting question. I mean, you could do a whole podcast on 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 that and on, on why the Liberal Party survived in the Celtic fringe, which was pretty much the basis of its support from the 1930s right through to the, I mean, almost right through to the 90s, actually. Um, mm. And it's quite different now when most of our seats are not rural uh, at all. Um, and I think um, it was factors like we tended to survive in areas where um, Traditionally, the constituencies had voted against the Conservatives. There's no great support for the, the forces of privilege and the establishment. But Labour had never managed to establish itself as the anti-Tory party, largely because there weren't large manufacturing industries, there weren't much uh, history of trade unionism uh, or an industrialised working class. So they tended to be more rural. Often the link was still important with non-conformity with the uh, non-Church of England Protestant uh, groups like Methodists and Baptists and so on. That was quite important, underpinning a liberal vote. And just the sheer um, uh, force of personality in some cases, people like Thorpe were very strong, charismatic candidates and managed to take seats. But you know, remember we're talking about a handful of seats. The Liberal Party was down to six seats um, by 1954. Five, wasn't it? And I, I wonder if part of it 70s. was, and this becomes more relevant for what happens in subsequent decades, with the, uh, before the European community and its different guises is really developed, being anti-establishment meant being pro-European. So all the way back to the anti-Corn Law League, you know, that was, as you were explaining earlier, that was very much about being anti the existing establishment, those in power, etc., and that parlays into wanting close international cooperation. And so by the 20th century, you get into that being pro-European. Pro As the European community develops and develops its own institutions and its own establishment, being anti-establishment 
stops meaning being pro-European, it sort of becomes being anti-European. And in a way, you know, this is one of the problems with the how the pro-European case was made in the debates over Brexit in this century was that the pro-European case came over as being very much about being happy with how things are and being pro-establishment and wanting things to continue. And, and I, I, I suspect that part of the strains in the Liberal Party were due to that sort of switch that as, you know, that particularly, say, in the southwest of England, especially down in Cornwall, there's a very strong sense of being distant from the centres of political power. And if those centres of political power start being European, then that more easily plays into being anti-European, whilst in other respects still very much sharing the same values as pro-European colleagues in other bits of the country. Yeah, I think that's a fair argument, actually. And certainly when the Liberals first took up the case of European unity uh, from 1957 onwards, that was against both the other main parties. And both the other main parties really struggled with that issue. Uh, I mean, Macmillan's Conservative government uh, first applied to join in 63, or at least the, the process came to an end in 63 when de Gaulle vetoed it. And Wilson's Labour government tried again in 67. Um, but both parties switched back and forth between supporting the EU and or supporting UK entry to the EU and opposing it. And there were major splits in both parties, whereas the Liberal Party was pretty united on that. And you're right, to start with, it was an anti-establishment uh, feeling, but it, it changed quite um, a lot later on. Uh, I think one other factor that I didn't mention about the package that Grimmond and the Liberals were putting forward in the 50s and 60s, which was attractive to rural constituencies, was the idea of decentralizing political and mm. economic power from the center. And that was quite important as well. He argued for things like, uh, I think, a Highlands Development Corp uh, Corporation for the Scottish Highlands, um, generally paying, paying more attention to regions that were themselves, as you said, felt neglected and indeed were, were neglected by London and the Southeast. Um, so as you mentioned, in the 60s, there were two different applications from Britain to join the European community, one under a Conservative Prime Minister, one under a Labour Prime Minister, both vetoed by Charles de Gaulle. And then in an almost slightly unseemly way, the moment Charles de Gaulle left the political scene, <laughs> the third application went in and it was then under a Tory Prime Minister again, Edward Heath, that Britain then went through the negotiations and joined uh, joined the European community. Um, now, I think if I remember rightly, the Liberals had actually quite a key part to play in that, the, the, particularly the parliamentary stages of that ascension to the European community. Yes, that's right. And also we can trace the beginnings of the STP, the Social Democratic mm. Party, to that period as well. So in um, after Wilson's failed application to join the EC in 67, the Labour Party began to turn quite heavily away from UK membership of the EU, um, as it had been before, actually. And you had um, Labour leader Hugh Gateskill before Wilson making arguments about Britain shouldn't turn its back on a thousand years of history. It's kind of amazing sort of reactionary kind of speak. You don't really expect from a Labour, well, maybe mm. you do expect them from a Labour leader. Um, but by the early 70s, they were beginning to move more decisively to the left as well and argue for what ultimately socialism in one country. So the vote, uh, the original vote on starting the process of application in the House of Commons in October 1971 was notable for the fact that uh, Roy Jenkins, who later was to lead the STP, led 69 Labour MPs in voting with the government uh, and the Liberal Party, of course, against the three-line whip. Uh, and that was quite a decisive break. And many of those individuals later on joined the STP, whether as uh, MPs or as members. But then later on, um, the Labour Party was consistently whipping against most aspects of the legislation. And Jenkins and his followers, having kind of made their big statement to start with, um, didn't regard themselves as having to vote on the pro-European pro side every time. And that would have presumably caused more problems with maybe having the whip withdrawn and so on. So, uh, and the Tory government that had a majority had their own anti-EU rebels. Um, so actually the Liberals, even though there were only six of them at the time, were really crucial in a whole series of votes in taking aspects of the what became the European Communities Act through the House of Commons. And quite a few of those votes were just won. I mean, the second reading of the act was only won by eight votes. Um, and subsequent uh, votes on some of the amendments were only won by a handful of votes. So you can actually say that Jeremy Thorpe's Liberal Party at the time, even though it was tiny in number, had a crucial role to play in taking the UK into the European Union. And of course, with six MPs, a majority of eight would have only required four MPs uh, to vote the other way. And then the Speaker's casting vote would have been 
uh, is normally to preserve the status quo. So it would have been again. So yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah, a small number of Liberal MPs were crucial. Um, so Britain joins the European Community. However, Ted Heath then loses power. Harold Wilson becomes Labour Prime Minister once again. And there's a referendum held. This was the way that Harold Wilson held the Labour Party together over Europe was to say, OK, we will renegotiate terms and then we'll hold a referendum on the new terms. And I think this was also quite an important stage in the development of the SDP, wasn't it? Because it meant there were cross-party yes and no campaigns in the referendum and the cross-party pro-European campaign brought together pro-European Labour politicians and Liberal politicians, particularly just regularly travelling around the country, appearing on platforms next to each other. And I mean, you're reading some of the memoirs of figures involved. It almost feels like they were discovering that, yeah, these are normal human beings in this other party. And just that extended period of close contact meant they also realised that maybe there aren't such big political differences between us. And that seems to have been quite important in preparing the ground for the, the later split from the Labour Party and the creation of the SDP. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. It was a really important step. Uh, and as I say, it was a much more effective cross-party campaign than we saw in 2016, when the, the pro-EU campaign was pretty tightly controlled um, and really badly run um, from uh, from uh, the, from the centre. Um, this genuinely involved uh, the three people from all of the three parties, because there were plenty of Tory pro-Europeans, of course, um, at the time, cooperating really well, both at the centre and in the regions. There were, you know, pro-common market. I remember um, putting a pro-common market sticker on my briefcase as I walked to school. It was kind of the early stirrings of political consciousness in, in my own life. Um, and there were people handing out stickers in you know, where I went to school um, in Edinburgh. Uh, so it was a much, much better campaign and uh, a genuinely cross-party one and absolutely helped to cement the relationships between Liberals and Labour, pro-European Labour, at every level in the way that began to uh, happen with the votes on the European Communities Act in the early 70s, but uh, was much more important and much more kind of thoroughgoing throughout the party, uh, throughout the parties uh, in the 75 referendum. And being clearly pro-European was therefore very much a part of the SDP's political identity. It also became a clear part of the Alliance's political identity, although, you know, by that time, the party still had a fair number of seats in more, as we would now think of it, more Eurosceptic parts of the country. Nonetheless, they, I don't think they were really that, they weren't Liberals objecting to pro-Europeanism being forced on them by the SDP, were there? That it was a pretty broad consensus yet part of the reason that there was that broad consensus was the party never really made that much of its pro-europeanism in its election campaigns so it was a bit easier for for mps and candidates in some places to uh to sort of dodge around the potential implications of that policy stance for the electorate in their particular area and of course in a pre-internet world it was a lot easier for people to say slightly different things and to give different emphasis to issues in their leaflets because you wouldn't have a whole load of leaflets being shared on Twitter and highlighting look this leaflet mentions Europe and this candidate in this seat has just edited that bit out. Yes that's right uh, of all the issues that cause problems in the merger between the Liberal Party and the SDP commitment to EU membership and the further development of the EU was absolutely not one of them that was uh, that was uh, important and indeed the fact that the Labour Party had shifted quite decisively in favour of the UK withdrawal from the EU in by 81 was really important in driving the founders of the SDP out of the Labour Party and yeah there were uh, there was never a problem there um yeah the campaigning issue i mean particularly I think as the party began to be better at targeting and at running really local campaigns and not relying very much on the kind of national message, um, absolutely in many seats it downplayed the European issue. I mean, you know, by the by the sort of late 80s, early 90s, well, it, it was pretty, the European issue seemed to be settled. I mean, there were people agitating to for UK withdrawal and there were the Maastricht rebels in the, in, over the Maastricht Treaty, um, but they weren't seen at the time as terribly significant. So it wasn't like there was a major body of public opinion calling for UK withdrawal from the EU. But what the party did was just not talk about it at all, really. Uh, and even we were running European campaigns, you know, focusing very much, European Parliament election campaigns, focusing very much on uh, domestic issues like health and education in the belief that that's what uh, the voters were more interested in.
and the party started dallying with referendums or referenda. Uh, again, I'll let people in Twitter feedback argue over those two it's words. Definitely re referendums. I remember in the 19, what would be 1993, Newbury parliamentary by-election, for example, Europe did feature on the front page of one tabloid newspaper that I delivered, but only in the context of uh, it's OK, you can vote for us because we'll have a referendum before Britain <laughs> should join the euro. Yeah, and, and so in as much as Europe was headlined as a policy, it was headlined in a it's OK, you can vote for us, even if you're not as keen on Europe as as we are, because we'll give you we'll give you another vote before anything major happens. And there was a real downplaying in that sense of Europe as a positive vote winner in a way that I think for the reasons you say is probably quite justifiable that it wasn't very high up the list of voters concerns. And, and actually, although in a way I slightly wince thinking about that tabloid now in terms of our enthusiasm for a referendum, uh, one also has to say that was, that went out in a by-election that the party then took a seat off the Tories on an absolutely massive swing. So from that tactical and short and medium term consideration, at least not banging on about Europe all the time was probably the right move, but it perhaps came with a long-term cost of leaving the political debate stage on that issue pretty much empty save for people who very much took a different line and were very eurosceptic they were the only people really talking about the issue very much for a long time yes i think that's right i mean it began to be an issue didn't it from the early 90s because of the maastricht treaty which was a, another stage in european integration and the kind of the, the sort of bigger point underlying all this is that is that free trade kind of only gets you so far or at least the kind of classical notion of free trade only gets you so far and there's and this is i think forgotten by quite a lot of the kind of enthusiasts for free trade um within the party at the moment mm. in that because the um gat and wto process of trade liberalization has proceeded such a long way for most products for most countries import duties are very, very low, and there's not much scope to reduce them much further. That's not entirely true for agricultural products, but for manufactured products, it pretty much is. Um, other forms of trade uh, barriers like quotas and uh, export duties and so on have been largely swept away. So what you get into now, the trade barriers now are about standards, about whether classic things like chlorinated chicken mm. or beef fed on hormones or whether um, appliances are energy efficient or not. And you can't get into, uh, and you know, if you proceed down the route of trade liberalization logically, and there are many good reasons to do that, you have to start addressing domestic policy about said food standards, energy efficiency standards, health and safety standards. And that becomes quite difficult. And that's the route the EU has done. And that's why the case for political integration, as well as economic integration, is such a strong one. But obviously, that becomes more difficult for people. And that's what I think what we began to see from the 90s with uh, the Maastricht Treaty was a step on the road there. It began to trigger more and more opposition amongst the Tories, that the Thatcher's kind of conversion, having been you know, big enthusiasm for the single European Act and the, the internal market, which was a kind of logical development of those. She then changed the mind later and all their followers became anti-Europeans. Um, but it's true to say this was all sort of happening beneath the surface and people weren't really talking about it very much, apart from just at particular times like the Maastricht Treaty, until the referendum in 2016, when all of a sudden people had to think about Europe in a way they hadn't done before. And it's true, I mean, the party had yeah, we published policy papers and manifestos that are all solidly pro-European to start with, but we never made a big issue of it in election campaigns. And when we did, we, as you said, we tried to allay potentially anti-European voters' concerns by talking about referendums all the time. Yeah. And I guess underlying it all was this big psychological shift that, as you as you were saying, in earlier decades, being pro-European meant essentially removing taxes at the border. But that then the, the evolution of that was being pro-European meant being in favour of standards being set that would apply to a product, even a purely made and sold domestically. And that sort of sense, therefore, of, of being pro-European, not being about removing removing issues that are a little bit remote and at the border but being somehow much more getting into sort of everyday domestic decisions all for really good reasons and I think you know actually you know the examples you gave were all good examples of where 
the European Union has actually helped introduce standards that are all for the best in terms of improving the likelihood of the planet not going up in flames, improving the livelihood of animals and all of that. But you can see why for some people it it felt like the European project was becoming much more intrusive in day-to-day activities. I, I think the other thing, and this is perhaps partly one thing that the referendum campaign really failed to get over was an awful lot of the regulations that people blame the EU for are regulations that would exist anyway. And actually what happens is because you have an international organisation, it gets done under the remit of that international organisation. But if you don't have that international organisation, you end up having other ways of trying to reach agreements and set standards and so on. So there's a, I mean, there's a fascinating history of the development of all sorts of international standards in the late 19th and early 20th century, even you know, things that you might not even think of as a standard, but the fact that we can post stuff to other mm. countries and other countries can post, you know, there's a whole huge amount of regulation that because it doesn't have the European hat on it, doesn't attract anything like the same political ire from some that something that comes with a European label does. Yes, that's absolutely right. And I think the reality is, you know, in today's world, unless you unless you think that the UK can really exist by itself without any interaction with neighbouring countries at all, and if you think that, you're clinically insane, um, we are either going to have to accept standards set, we're going to have to set, accept standards set by somebody, some big trading block. And reality, the reality is for the UK, we're either going to accept European standards or we're going to accept American standards. And there really isn't much space in between that. And maybe it's a good idea to be a member of the block that sets the standards that we end up well, having. To that is <laughs> indeed the absolute logical. And we're talking now, you know, part of the debate, part of the motion that we voted for at conference a week ago on European, uh, European inter- uh, on our approach to Europe was, you know, working more uh, closely with Europe when we're outside the EU, leading eventually to membership of the customs union and the single market. So that means accepting European standards without any question at all, but having no say in actually setting them. So I think, you know, that's not a logical endpoint. The, the logical endpoint is rejoining the EU. Which is indeed what the motion, partly thanks to the amendment that you moved, uh, does does make clear is the endpoint that we want. But I think it also illustrates why, for example, I spoke in that debate in favour of your amendment um, and, the, and in, hence in favour of the amended motion, is that if you say, well, OK, how do we get out of where we're at? There is a step-by-step process by which you can try to win people over that could be and I hope will be much more persuasive than simply jumping to the end point immediately. Because if you focus on the most immediate practical difficulties that the country faces, people who aren't yet sold on the end point can be won over by them. But then when you see, okay, yes, actually, we do still have to follow some standards. It makes sense. And these standards are good. Let's cooperate more on the standards. And then, oh, yes, isn't it it's more sense if we have a bit of political control? You know, there's a there's a process there that people can be taken through that if you just jump to the end point, I think people, as we've seen in the last couple of years, just too many people aren't interested in listening because they think you're just treating them as being stupid or wrong or wanting to turn back the clock. Uh, a more softly, softly approach is needed. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And what we need to do now, because the party hasn't thought about how the UK outside the EU should relate to the EU, because up until last year's election, we were arguing for the UK to stay in the EU. So there's a whole series of steps we need to go through to say, um, and I think to point out after the UK finally leaves the transition period, um, to point out where in particular case, whether it's food standards or cooperation over climate change uh, or cooperation over cross-border human trafficking or terrorism, whatever, if we work together with the EU like this, we would handle this issue better than the current government are doing because they're not working with the EU. And we can go through that in a whole series of steps. And we need to put the thinking into uh, what the sensible steps are to do, because uh, there are aspects of the EU you could be part of without actually being a member of the EU, like, for example, the emissions trading system or being part of the EU delegation at climate talks to arguing for more ambition, that kind of thing, in the way that countries like Norway and Iceland um, currently do already. Um, so we need to put some thought into what the logical and the kind of popular things that we can argue for European cooperation are, and then take people down that path gradually, which steadily leads towards, as we were talking about, rejoining the EU when the time is right. Anything that benefits the NHS, I suspect, would be near the top of that list. Um, and that's partly why I've sometimes used the example of Euratom, that potentially rejoining Euratom would be quite a good point to push for because of the way that can be linked to benefiting health services and healthcare in Britain. 
And also it then becomes a practical, do you want the NHS to be better versus the more abstract argument over sovereignty and the remit of the European Court of Justice and the like. And, you know, it, it's it's much better to, to be able to fight on a practical benefit versus a, an abstract objection. And those feel like the sort of political battles that can be fought and won. And you win a series of them and cumulatively over time, you can see how not only have things been made better in the interim, but also that leads up to more and more people being stronger, uh, more holding a pro-European view more strongly and more widely. That's right, I think. And we need to start talking about it as well. So actually, it is probably time to bring European issues back into our focus leaflets and just to demonstrate, you know, why on this particular issue on Euratom, as you say, or anything to do with the NHS, we would be better off as a country cooperating with the EU, taking part in EU led institutions than not doing so. Although possibly not mentioned in the 1950s or the 1820s <laughs> as much as we have had in this podcast. But that's been absolutely fascinating, Duncan. My one sort of final question would be for anyone who's interested in the sorts of stuff that we've talked about on this episode, any recommendations for what they should read to learn up a bit more about it? I'm guessing that a liberal democrat history group publication may be about to get a plug from you <laughs> well of course uh, it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't be normal if i didn't do that i was just looking behind me on my bookshelves and i annoyingly i can't remember the author but if people are interested in the debate around free trade and the sort of many um aspects of that and the way in which it was so important to British politics throughout the 19th century, there is a very good book called Free Trade Nation. Uh, and annoyingly, I can't remember the author, but Mark will be able to find out who yeah. it was and uh, put it in the, in yeah. the podcast. I'll notes. put it in the, the show notes with a link the to the notes. book. But the single uh, easiest thing for people to access is our special issue of the Journal of Liberal History on the liberal commitment to Europe, which we published in spring 2018. Um, and it's issue 98. And we make all uh, of our issues, copies of the Journal of Liberal History, free for download on our website, apart from the most recent 10 issues. And just two weeks ago, we published issue 108. So yeah, people will be able yeah. to work out that issue 98 has just become free uh, free to download at the moment. So you can find that on the History Group website. And it's full of um, articles about the, orig the origins of the commitment to uh, free trade in Europe, how the European debate was resolved within the party in the 50s and 60s. Really good article there by William Wallace. Um, um, stuff about liberal parties in Europe, Shirley Williams and the importance of the uh, interview with Shirley Williams about the importance of the Europe to the SDP and various other things. I think it's a it's a really good read. Excellent. I will include a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, so thank you very much for your time, Duncan, and our trip down history lane. People can find Duncan on Twitter at Duncan Brack, myself at Mark Pack, and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. And of course, do check out the Liberal History Group at liberalhistory.org.uk. Uh, as you'll have heard from our discussion, we've taken a slightly different route this time, talking about a policy area rather than a past leader. So feedback, extremely welcome on whether people would like more or less of such episodes in future. Look out in the show notes for follow-up links to all that we've discussed, including also my two previous episodes with Duncan about Joe Grimmond and David Steele. And if you like listening, please do tell others about the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time.